else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. In this episode, we talk ecosystems, the external and the internal. Melissa visits Reflection Riding Arboretum and Nature Center in Tennessee to study the endangered American red wolf. And Abby talks with scientist Marin Hunsberger about our body's microbiomes, And we see how just one change can throw everything for a loop. Guess what I'm doing later today? Um, saving the planet. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) always. Um, No, I'm about to head out and do Duck Watch place called city wildlife in dc they are monitoring the duck population near the lincoln memorial in the reflecting pool and so what 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 do you do (laughs) so i'm just counting ducks like literally just counting how many ducks are in these ponds and at the beginning of this cycle i was looking for nests and I was checking for how many ducklings are in a brood um, and writing all of this information down. I did find a dead duck once and it was really sad. I had to scoop it out of the water and put it in a plastic bag and take it to their labs for testing because a really weird bird flu is going around. But it's usually a very happy experience other than that because you just get to watch a bunch of fuzzy little ducklings with their moms eating all the gross algae off the top, which helps the ecosystem. That reminds me of all the times that like America has been obsessed with watching animals, like Penguin Watch. They set up all those cameras around a a penguin community so that you can watch them in their attempt to survive. You and all of us, when we do that, we kind of get this like firsthand experience as a conservationist and then reporting all the details so that you can kind of see how it's going, what needs to be done, what are the problems, is there a nasty bird flu, um, all that fun stuff. Yeah, like you can, I think they call it being like a citizen scientist. Like you can you can be doing this in your own backyard. You can take a notebook and just look around and be like, are the butterflies here today? Yes. Are they not here today? Why not? Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of like the duck sanctuary at my local park, but that that's kind of a created community. It's not the same idea as going out into nature and seeing the way in which these ducks interact with their environment and just watching and recording. It feels more so like ducks on display, like zoo. Yeah, it does make it a little bit weirder when we've like created a set place for them based on like what's best for humans around them. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head of like the controversy that exists right now around novel ecosystems, which is this term that describes communities that are transformed by human activities or human infrastructure, and they're manipulating an environment so that animals can live in it, but also that it 
might be appealing to humans to visit. It might, you know, not impact the way that humans live around it, that kind of thing. So it's trying to kind of create this common ground between humans and animals. But the question is, like, is this new normal good enough? Yeah, totally. I was going to say, like, is this something that people are, like, widely accepting or are we kind of on the edge about it? There's been some successes. Like, in Australia, there's this story about the brown bandicoots, which are these little, like, they look like chubby little mice. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. They're very cute if you want to look them up. And they have the best name. They're bandicoots. Yeah. It's not that they picked up all the bandicoots and moved them somewhere where they could survive. It was that they knew we have bandicoots in Melbourne. How do we make them feel at home here? Well, we're going to build them these natural environments like a zoo so that they can thrive better. So there are positives and it's like a band-aid. It's a, we did something nice, but we also destroyed part of the habitat that was naturally there. Yeah, right. It's covering our tracks instead of just not tracking there at all, <laughs> which... Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> like, we can actually leave these creatures alone. In an ideal world, we just, like, wouldn't have to go to these lengths. Maybe it's, like, a, one solution in a multi-pronged effort, you know, but like does that mean it's the solution? Probably not. Feels like the novel ecosystem thing could only work if they weren't introducing invasive or non-native species to whatever area that they're doing. And even then there's probably going to be unforeseen consequences of like a new pest coming in or you know, like anytime you move things around other things come to find it and for better or for worse. Right, and I think that's why what you know, conservation scientists do should be celebrated because they don't just throw a bunch of exotic plants out in a forest. They don't just move a collection of foxes somewhere random. They put in that effort of doing the constant surveillance and counting of ducks and their offlings and and what their feathers look like and what the water is like and all of it so that they know what's happening how we're negatively impacting and if there needs to be intervention to offset those negative impacts. I think that's, yeah, like that's what we're talking about today is just how one seemingly tiny thing can just throw everything for a loop. And we get into some really interesting stories here, so. Right, not only are we looking at ecosystems out in nature, which we've been talking about mostly now, but also we're looking into the ecosystem that applies within us, inside humans. Yes. All the things that can be done to negatively and positively impact our human ecology. Yes. Uh, We're going to learn a lot about all the different things that can mess that up and also make it better. Up first, Melissa examines the endangerment of America's very own red wolf. She told us it was a story made for a novel a bestseller, a blockbuster movie. It had sex and drama and mystery, decline and triumph, 
government agencies, angry judges, gun violence. It had its protagonists, of course, and their cousins, who offered both companionship and mayhem, and their antagonists, both the unwitting and malicious. But it was a story for me that opens with a little bit of truth. Like most good stories, it started with a video of a tiny wolf pup in the arms of a blue-jacketed conservationist. Wildlife advocates are thrilled because of a major milestone in North Carolina, the first red wolf pups born in the wild since 2018. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Red Wolf Recovery Program says a litter of six pups was born this week. A litter is raising hope for a brighter future for this species. They are the world's most endangered canine predator. Our protagonist, the American red wolf, the only native wolf species to the United States critically endangered, and in fact, yes, the most endangered canid in all the world. The antagonists, mostly us. Poachers, landowners, land developers, trappers. The latest numbers count 21 in the wild, running through a plot of preserved forest in northeastern North Carolina made up of 1.7 million acres of public and private land. So when a litter of six is born, that's a big deal. Especially since most of the 21 out there roaming are older wolves, past breeding age. So when we finally had a litter, it was just a big win, really big win. And that is our narrator, benefactor, angel figure of the tale at hand, or at least one of them. She's the one who told us this tale, told us it is the stuff for pages, and the one standing between my husband and I and three cages of American red wolves. Tish Galmard is the Director of Wildlife Conservation at Reflection Riding Arboretum and Nature Center in beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is a piece of land made up of about 300 acres set aside to bring people in touch with nature so that they can reflect during a ride through the countryside. That's at least the idea when it first opened after World War II, when you put a little money in the donation box and drove on through, top down, enjoying the vistas. Now visitors can hike, bike, and walk their dogs with that same purpose, connection with their environment and a greater education about the world around them. Our goal is to connect Chattanoogans with nature. We also have a native greenhouse where we propagate native plants. We'll actually collect seeds on the property and grow plants here. And then our greenhouse is open Tuesday through Saturday for people to come and purchase native plants. People don't understand that when you plant native plants, you are developing a healthy ecology and then the animals fit in and it's all this wonderful circle. And if you remove any of it, it crashes. One of my biggest mottos is I always tell everybody if our environment's healthy, then we humans are healthy. And when our environment's not healthy, we're sick. Mm. Um, it's evidenced everywhere. And the wolves are a huge part of that because they're an apex predator. So that in a nutshell is what we do. <laughs> Kyle and I aren't here to hike though. Well, not at the moment, we do that later. For now, we want to see the stars of the drama, the red wolves. First, Tish gives us some history on the species. This is the only native wolf to the United States. Gray wolves migrated here 
And then settlers came and brought with them all those fairy tales that we still teach our children today. Then came a wolf who was big, really big and really bad. He was really hungry and mad. He was really very mad. So they began to exterminate wolves and really any other large predator in the area. And then they developed the land. So fast forward up into about the 1950s, 1960s, some biologists realized the red wolf was in trouble. Um, they were going out in the woods and playing recordings of howls. They weren't hearing them, they weren't seeing them. And they thought something's going on. We've really got to make a change. We've got to figure out what's going on. In the late 60s and through the 70s, we began a program where we collected all canid-like animals from that area in an effort to save this animal from extinction. They transferred them up to Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium in Tacoma, Washington. They said, we'll run the captive program. So we started a captive program at that facility and um, they began breeding in captivity. When we think of captive wildlife, we think of zoos, aquariums, nature centers like Reflection Riding. And in the best of these places, a key goal for animals living in captivity is conservation of endangered species to help breed and repopulate the wild. Remember Diego, the 130-year-old tortoise back in 2020 whose private and prolific sex life was outed by the media? I suppose in the best of ways? CNN ran this headline. This playboy tortoise had so much sex, he saved his entire species. And Diego did help boost a dying tortoise population to over 2,000 from only 14. After he was shipped from San Diego Zoo to the Galapagos Islands, the amorous reptile was part of a captive breeding program. By definition, these are initiatives where endangered animals in zoos or other facilities are encouraged to reproduce with the aim of releasing the offspring back into the wild to revive populations that are on the brink. It reminds me of a recent trip I took to DC Smithsonian National Zoo with my nieces. In front of each animal enclosure on the description block, the zoo posted the status of the animal in a color ranging from green to red. Green, the population is healthy and safe. Red, the animal is one of the most critically endangered. When I explained these colors to my youngest niece, Josie, age three, she was very concerned, becoming the first to check the color status of each animal when we stood in front of it. If green, she would encourage us. Don't worry, they're okay, she'd say. If red, her little mouth would drop open, eyes wide. Oh no, she'd gasp. Not good. The DC Zoo is connected to the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, which was opened in 1974, and houses and cares for even more of these endangered creatures. Off-site, at a 1,000-acre facility in Front Royal, Virginia, which is not open to the public. SCBI for short, houses scientists playing a leading role in the Smithsonian's global efforts to save species from extinction. In Front Royal, they study and breed more than 20 species, including some that were once extinct in the wild, 
such as black-footed ferrets. The Institute actually ran a triumphant story last month about the birth of two critically endangered blue-billed curassows. The first chick, named Aluna, hatched August 5th. Her sister, Lulo, hatched August 28th. Currently, the North American blue-billed curassow population totals about 73 birds, including Aluna and Lulo. Historically, these birds lived throughout northern Colombia. Today, the entire wild population occurs in just a few small areas of tropical lowland forest. The main threats facing wild blue-billed curassows are us, through habitat loss and fragmentation. Also, there are more males than females, so female chicks are considered a crucial hatch for the population at this point. The chicks' parents, named Jackie and JB, arrived at the zoo in 2016 and 2019, following a breeding recommendation from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums Species Survival Plan, the SSP. The manager at the SSP chooses which animals to breed by considering their genetic compatibility, personality, health and temperament, and some other factors. It basically happens the same way at Reflection Riding, just the focus is on the breeding and population growth of the red wolves. Kyle and I walked closer to the animals' enclosures, but the wolves are reserved, less trusting and social with humans. Only one is out in the open, pacing a line between us and his partner wolf, anxious about the newcomers, which is a good thing. Reflection Riding joined the program in 1996. By the early to mid-80s, we were realizing this is going to work. This is really going to be a good thing. The whole goal was to get this animal back on the landscape so it could do its job. And we needed to find an area where there were no coyotes. Ah, uh, here we have our sidekick characters, the cousins, the coyotes. Red wolves actually look a lot like coyotes. They're about the same size, though red wolves usually weigh a bit more with thicker, shorter muzzles. And while the red in the red wolf's fur is more of a rust and sometimes non-existent, it is another marker of the difference visually. The major difference though between the two is that the coyote is definitely not endangered and not as reserved. In fact, in Virginia where I live, they are listed by the DWR as a nuisance species. The red wolf though, more reserved with a much smaller population, is listed as critical. But to preserve a species, you want to limit interspecies breeding, which will only end up with hybrids. So the red wolves were moved to northeastern North Carolina, away from their yelping mischievous run-amuck cousins. And in their new home, the wolves were doing great. By 2010, they had about 140 on that landscape. But, drama, the coyotes showed up. They infiltrated. They can't stand not being part of the story. Well, the conservationists had an idea. They chose to sterilize some of the male coyotes and put them back on the land as placeholders holding down the territory, which they had already claimed, but no longer capable of spreading their genes among our beloved protagonists. Another first, Tish tells us, and another triumph. Still, with the cousins managed, 
the main struggle of the tale was not resolved. We still needed more wolves. 140 is not enough. And just for a comparison model, those cousins, the coyotes, they've expanded to live across 49 states. And even with some eradication efforts killing hundreds of thousands of them every year, their numbers continue to grow. A North Carolina estimate claimed about 50,000 roaming across that state. And Kansas said about 300,000 live there. So if we add it all up, we're talking millions, millions of cousins. So again, 140 wolves is not enough. We're trying to figure out how can we get more animals on the landscape and how can they grow up wild? So then we came up with the pup fostering program. So when a wild litter is born at the same time a captive litter is born, we'll pull one to two of the captive pups, foster it into the wild litter, mom accepts them, 100% success rate. And again, then we have an animal that's growing up wild. They know how to be wild, they know how to live in the woods and not under human care. I have this image, this scene from Game of Thrones stuck in my head, the one where the Starks find the dead direwolf and the six pups. And it just fits the visual here. By the way, direwolves, real species, even though they went extinct 13,000 years ago. And some researchers think it's possible that incoming dog-like species and other wolves may have outcompeted direwolves or spread diseases that could hurt them. Researchers are also not sure if direwolves and humans ever coexisted. But if today's relationship between North Carolinians and red wolves proves anything, the humans could have possibly also aided in dire wolf extinction. If you look at our wolves and you look at a coyote, they're very similar in appearance. We had a lot of mistaken identity and we started to lose this animal to gunshot mortality. Our numbers began to plummet rapidly. A bunch of organizations got together and went before a judge and said, we have got to stop coyote hunting in the recovery area. In fact, it was written up as a scathing court decision back in November of 2018. The Washington Post wrote that North Carolina's federal chief judge, Terrence W. Boyle, ripped the Interior Department's management of the last red wolf population in the wild, saying that an agency sworn to hold up a congressional mandate to preserve the animals violated it over and over, even giving private landowners the right to shoot them. Boyle ruled that a temporary injunction issued against Fish and Wildlife's shoot-to-kill authorization in 2016 during the Obama administration is now permanent. The agency must prove that a wolf is a threat to humans or livestock before it can make a decision to take its life. Deciding in favor of the Red Wolf Coalition, Defenders of Wildlife, and the Animal Welfare Institute, Boyle said the agency had violated a rule passed by Congress to resurrect the wolves, protect them, and conserve the species. Drama. But Fish and Wildlife made a turnaround. They decided that they wanted to know more about what the conservation was doing and decided to conduct a full review of their actions and goals. But while they were reviewing, they pulled the director of the wild program. They stopped puppy fostering and they stopped um, sterilization of coyotes. And I want to be sure that everyone understands we work with 
the absolutely most dedicated U.S. Fish and Wildlife individuals. These people are on the ground, climbing through briars and muck and mud and seeds and ticks, looking for puppies, trying to find adults. They are constantly vigilant and they are incredibly dedicated. The issues came from the top. You know, with a lot of conversations and a lot of statistics, we finally helped them understand the value of the animal and what we had to do to make it succeed. At this point in our story, we should stop to ask why. Why does all of this matter? In the fall 2009 issue of International Wolf Magazine, former Red Wolf Recovery Program Coordinator David Raban wrote about the value of restoring red wolves to the wild. And here I quote, every species has intrinsic worth. In addition to the obvious aesthetic value, the red wolf plays a practical and positive role in maintaining healthy and balanced ecosystems. Restoring red wolves also enhances the Earth's biodiversity. At the very least though, there may be an ethical obligation to right past wrongs and learn from past mistakes that can only be realized or actualized with the restoration of animals like red wolves and other predators. And Jane Goodall said it best. She said, nature is a big tapestry. And when one thread gets pulled, it's weakened. And when more threads are pulled, it begins to fall apart. And those threads are all these species that we have to have. The work we do here is critical to keeping our environment healthy. And again, if our environment's unhealthy, we humans get sick. And humans cause so many problems, we muck up everything. A humble human would nod along with this notion. Yes, muck. We tend to muck everything up. But that same humble human loves a recovery story, loves the tale of the ragtag football team that comes back from three humiliating losses to win the championship. Loves the kid for getting back on the bike after falling off six or 16 times. But recovery and growth, it's all a process. A process that starts with awareness and knowledge, Tish says. And so we have to learn to respect our environment. We have to learn to respect the animals that keep our environment healthy. And that's what we try to do here. Educate, educate, educate. Not just reflection rotting, it's every cooperator in the Red Wolf program. Um, and we're determined to recover this animal, and we'll do it. Recovery of a species is also a process. Some species can be fully recovered to healthy, self-sustaining populations. However, for most species, recovery requires the implementation of management actions for many years. That is what the 47 facilities and reflection riding and fish and wildlife's boots on the ground are attempting a coalition brought together to build back the population. The red wolf is America's wolf, the only large keystone predator whose historic range is found entirely within the United States as it once roamed from Texas to New England. But this is a different world than back then. We are gonna have to change some husbandry tactics because we released, recently released 14 adults into the wild and um, we only have three on the landscape from those 14. Car strike, big mm -hmm. problem. Car strike's yeah. a big problem. Gunshot's a big problem. 
and the others were actually wandering onto people's porches and <laughs> looking in their windows and hanging out at the Dollar General and they had become too used to humans. Yeah. Perhaps the best way for red wolves to become savvy about their environment is from their parents, who ideally would pass on generations of learned wisdom about avoiding roads, about how to hunt, and about how to live together. But better preparing wolves for release when they're already captured is another ongoing process. But roads are difficult to prepare them for. Some centers have experimented with forms of negative reinforcement, like attempting to get captive wolves to associate car noises with semi-stressful experiences like health exams. Feeding times are also varied to prevent captive wolves from associating food with humans. And when possible, they are also housed in family groups. We meet one of them at Reflection Riding. And so this family unit here, there's a mom and a dad and two yearlings that were born here last year. They're actually um, not gonna go to the wild, but they're gonna transfer to another facility. Okay. Facilities will trade wolves to maintain genetic diversity while breeding. This is another highly studied and facilitated process. They work with geneticists as well as software programs that have mapped the genetic history of each wolf they know of. And right now we're running at almost 89% genetic diversity, which is really good for a very small genetic population, 14 founding parents. Yeah. Um, so we're very careful who we breed with whom. So Tish, our storyteller helper figure, is also one to play matchmaker, like many others working in this field. She introduces us to Ruby and Apollo, very fertile, she says, who make for a good red wolf match because they are less related than other wolves. All the wolves are related, but these are the least related. And pairs like Ruby and Apollo are going to be extremely necessary because those numbers we talked about earlier, the 140 wolves, they've plummeted down to eight at one point with the halting of pup fostering and with even more human interference. We've created habitat fragmentation. So say you've got a contiguous piece of habitat and then we humans come in and build something in the middle of that habitat. Well, we just fragmented that habitat. So if you've got an animal in one part of the habitat and they need to get to the other side, they're gonna go through that development. So once again, here we are messing everything up. I know sometimes we sound like broken records on this podcast. We mess everything up. We mess everything up. Humans, get a grip. You're messing everything up. But if your baseball coach doesn't correct your batting stance, are you ever going to successfully hit the ball in the right direction? And it's not only the wolves at Reflection Writing that need to teach us. Tish tells us about the box turtles. Eastern box turtles are being illegally traded and shipped to Asian countries for traditional medicine, for food, and for pets. And it has really put the Eastern box turtle in trouble. Most of them die in shipping. Yeah, I was say. They get disease. Right. They land in a port and they're all sick. It's just a horrible, horrible situation. Yeah. And so we are working with Turtle Survival Alliance and then Turtle Safe. And then all of our other animals have permanent injuries. That's why they're here and we use them as educational animal ambassadors. And so we're teaching people yeah. why this animal is important and how you can conserve its habitat. We walk around to another enclosure behind the wolves to see a sad-eyed red fox named Todd. Todd's a little bit different um, MO than we normally have. 
So he was born and bred um, at an exotic farm in Indiana. And he was on his way to an exotic auction and we intercepted and bought him. Foxes are in vogue right now, Tish tells us. Not to wear dead, although that might still be in fashion somewhere, but to own as pets. Though I'm not sure why anyone would want that after Tish tells us that they stink like some sort of cross between skunk and vinegar. But the exotic auction of animals like Todd in Tennessee is legal, even though buyers often regret their purchases. Seeing that Todd is a wild man, you know, like a wild animal should be, Reflection Riding uses their residents like Todd to educate their visitors, hopefully better delineating the truth of wild and domesticated creatures. Tish shows us some more of that education, holding a possum on her chest like my niece does her kitten. The possum's hair is wiry, her eyes big, and her nails long. But she is sweet, Tish says, a helpful member of our environment, nature's garbage man. We tour more of the animals who live at Reflection Riding. We meet a bobcat named Abby who was stolen from the wild as a baby and kept as a pet until her captors surrendered her to the nature center. We meet a black vulture named Vlad, whom Tish says will follow you around like a dog, a barred owl, a red-shouldered hawk, and even a bald eagle, all of whom came in injured, were rehabilitated, and will live out their days at the nature center. Most of the birds at the nature center come in because of car strikes. This is when I learned to not throw my apple cores out the window of the car. We teach the apple core theory. You're in the car, you're eating an apple, you get it down to the core, you think I'll throw it out about a grade, I'm not littering. But when you throw it out, it sits on the side of the road, takes a while to about a grade, it attracts rodents. These are the rodent eaters. On the way down or the way up, they get hit by a car. I don't mind learning the lesson though. If we are to be good stewards of this giant planet, we have to understand its size, its diversity, its beauty, as well as the ways that we impact it, both negatively and positively. They say that when that famous image of the Earth from space was popularized, the one titled the Blue Marble, that the collective human view of the Earth changed in a way. What was once massive, uncontrollable, awe-inspiring, forbidable nature became pocket-sized, something to be manipulated, harnessed, controlled. And while I say these words, and they are negatively tinged, I realize that not every human attempt to touch and handle nature is wrong. To help repopulate, that has to be good. That has to represent humans not messing things up. Humans helping to rebalance the scales. Tish tells us one more twist to the tale of red wolves. And a story I love to tell, when they first put the red wolf in northeastern North Carolina, some of that landscape is on the coast. Sea turtles live in the ocean. They are also an endangered species and the population was a little bit low then. So after a few years of the red wolf being on the landscape, the sea turtle biologists noticed an uptick in the sea turtle population. They thought, what's going on? What's changed? And somebody said, well, they put red wolves on the landscape, you know, out there and some of them are right there along the coast. And everybody's like, okay, great. What's the, what's the deal? Well, red wolves, predate on raccoons and raccoons raid sea turtle nests and eat the eggs. So this is perfect balance. If we humans would get out of the way and let nature do its thing, it all balances. 
So by putting the red wolf back on the landscape, it helped the sea turtles. What a true hero of this story. I mean, anyone helping a sea turtle is top notch, right? Up next, Abby talks to Marin Hunsberger about the ecology of our guts. Katie woke up on the first day of 2018 with a pit in her stomach. I had this really intense bloating, distension, and, and at the same time it felt like there was something rotting in my stomach. It didn't feel normal, nor did it feel comfortable. Um, but I had had on and off weird stomach things come up, so I thought this would just be one of those and it would go away in a day or two. Well, a couple of weeks went by and it didn't go away. I met Katie in grad school, where we bonded over me calling hors d'oeuvres whores divorce because I'm a fool. <laughs> but I actually remember that one of our first deeper conversations was about gut health as we could commiserate through the frustration of having no control over a body we're supposed to understand. Katie never really felt back to normal after that New Year's Day. She bloated like crazy every day, like she looked eight months pregnant type of bloating. She felt sick a lot and often had blood in her stools, obviously concerning. She decided to take the pain seriously since it didn't pass after a few weeks and she visited a gastroenterologist in Northern Virginia to test for H. pylori, a common stomach infection. She figured she'd be in and out, find a solution, and move on with her life. However, I did the breath test and it came out negative. And I will always remember the way her face looked. The doctors. When I went and saw her again. She looked scared. She honestly looked kind of scared because I'm realizing now that it it was because she knew that she wouldn't have any answers. Over the years, Katie visited many different doctors, testing for Crohn's and cancer and reproductive issues, among other diseases. Negative, negative, negative. But many doctor visits later. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. After we ran what was probably a dozen other tests, we finally did a colonoscopy and um, it came out that I did have inflammation in um, my rectum. So technically I have ulcerative proctitis, but as the years have gone on, it's gone a little worse. I could be almost in remission and then I have like a glass of wine and I'm right back into a flare up because just that little bit of alcohol will cause my inflammation to go haywire and I basically have to start all over again. But the bloating never really went away. I remember Katie standing in front of me in the writing center in grad school, turned to the side, showing me how she looked pregnant, but she'd barely eaten anything all morning. She measured. Her stomach was distended by eight inches. Katie is a very small person, for reference, about 5'2", a slender dancer body frame. Her stomach, in that moment, did not fit and doctors had no way to help quell the bloating. I am bloated 99.9% of every day of the year, and I have a distended stomach, and I feel uncomfortable, and 
It feels like food rots in my stomach, and I, I, don't, I don't know why. So Katie was on her own there. She tried a thousand different elimination diets and different lifestyle changes too. Nothing worked permanently. For the majority of 2018, Katie was badly distended. Even now, with the diagnosis of colitis, Katie suffers from bloating. Not as bad as 2018, but still uncomfortable and body morphing. It's anecdotal, I know, but so many of my friends and acquaintances have gut issues. Those of us who know the pain don't really have any shame in talking about it. Because in communicating our symptoms, maybe we can find answers. But I think, especially as I've talked with Katie, we've come to the frustrating conclusion that it's different for everyone. A solution that might work for Katie might not work for me. And this is partly why we have to go to so many doctors. Each new doctor has to relearn your story, understand what you've tried and what you haven't, and work to come up with some solution. In the US's current healthcare system, we don't have the luxury of time and attention to dedicate to each person, to really get to the root of what's wrong. One thing that stands out to me is how one little thing can throw off everything for a person. For Katie, for instance, I've discovered I'm definitely lactose intolerant, so I've cut out dairy. And that has been really, really helpful in enjoying food again and not having horrible cramps after eating. I talked with Marin Huntsberger, scientist and science communicator, to learn a bit more about the ecosystem of our body, how tiny itty bitty things inside our bodies make everything work or throw everything off. My name is Marin Huntsberger and I'm a medical microbiologist. I'm also a science communicator, which means that I make videos and podcasts and all kinds of things about science. But I wanted to study bacteria because we're actually more bacteria than we are person. Our bacterial cells in and on our body outnumber our human cells like three to one. And understanding what they do for us as part of a, us as a living, breathing ecosystem uh, was something that I was really interested in, and I, I really think that it's the future of medicine. Marin told me that each person is a unique biome, similar to our unique fingerprint. And we have microbiomes throughout our bodies. The gut has its own bacteria, the mouth has its own bacteria, the bladder, the skin, and so on. While we've known about the science of microbiomes for a while, its applicability is still relatively new. Marin focuses most on the urogenital microbiome, but speaks to microbiomes generally here. She provides this caveat before we go further. Microbiome science is really right on the edge. It's a frontier pioneering science, which means that there's lots of amazing research coming out about it and lots of fantastic headlines that people might be seeing in magazines or newspapers about how it might be changing the face of medicine or, or treatments you may receive in the future. But the thing is, is that because it is so new, we, we've known about microbiomes for a long time, but we've really just in the past 10 and really just the past five years developed the technological capability to understand what's going on. So the information that we have is also really new and almost none of it is applicable to people at this current stage. So my overarching message to most people is that unless you're part of like a really advanced clinical trial, you probably won't be benefiting from microbiome science currently. That said, a working knowledge of the microbiomes within our body can help us understand how they function. 
For gut health, we have to understand that every living thing has its own biome, which means that when we eat an apple or a tomato, we're also digesting the biome that lived on that fruit or vegetable, diversifying our own gut microbiome. Kind of creepy? Marin says that's because we have a negative connotation when it comes to bacteria. And it's because we've had this understanding for so long of bacteria as a bad thing. Bacteria as pathogens, which is which means something that makes you sick, right? And of course, tons of bacteria are pathogens. But one of the most important things to understand about a microbiome is that it is a very carefully balanced group. I think it's a really, it makes a lot of sense to call it an ecosystem. And just like ecosystems in a forest, if one species gets out of balance, if one group becomes too dominant, that's when you get illness. That's when you get uh, something going wrong, something not feeling right. Even if that member of the ecosystem is just typically there, hanging out, chilling, doing its thing, uh, if it gets out of balance and it, it grows too much, it can make you ill, even though it is a normal member of that, that community. So the the important thing to remember about it is that even though it, it may seem like oh no bacteria that's a bad thing it's like only in certain circumstances right it's weird to think of our bodies as ecosystems but at the same time we know we are organic matter just like the ecosystems around us so it feels right maybe i'm like a desert and katie is like the pacific northwest and Marin is an arctic tundra it makes sense that if I eat something that Katie loves, it might mess me up. A desert isn't supposed to hold pine trees. What works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for you. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have clinical applications for a lot of this knowledge is because it's so individual. And that's also what makes it so exciting is that it, it will allow for a lot of personalization of treatment um, moving forward. But we're just not quite there yet for, you know, products off the shelf. I asked Marin if our microbiomes are affected depending on where we live. For me, I moved from Utah to DC, and it wasn't until I moved to DC that I noticed strange gut issues. It could be simply correlation and not causation, but at this point, any hypothesis helps on the gut health journey. Everything that's happening in and around your body is affecting what microorganisms are colonizing inside and on you as a being, um, what chemicals you're exposed to in your day-to-day -day life, what exercise you're doing, what foods you're eating, um, what medications you're prescribed can all change how your body is functioning, including those microorganisms that, that make up so much of our body. And so the holistic nature of health, I think, really needs to be taken more into account, especially when it comes to stress, because as we know, long-term chronic stress leads to high inflammation. High inflammation changes our microbial signature, especially in our gut microbiome, which is really susceptible to hormonal changes and really susceptible to stress hormones like cortisol. Um, and those bacteria are receiving those signals, those changes in stress hormone, and those bacterial, bacterial communities are changing and therefore the function of your gut is changing. Sometimes with our guts, the call is coming from inside the house stress, anxiety, an influx or reduction of serotonin or dopamine or cortisol, or whatever throws off your gut's microbiome, just like food might. In the years Katie studied her gut health, she wondered if emotional or mental stress affected her gut. She was affected by a lot of trauma and post-traumatic stress from various life events at the same time and months before 
all the gut craziness was happening. I'm seeing a gastrointestinal psychologist now who is going to walk me through clinical hypnosis to try and mitigate these um, symptoms. And the theory behind that is that when we have some sort of intestinal, you could even say trauma, but a lot of times we then become very hypervigilant, are thinking about and are stressing about what's going to happen to our stomach, are we going to be able to travel, are we going to be like this forever, are we going to have a flare-up, um, and because of that, you, the serotonin in your brain and your gut um, has this sort of disconnect or it has too much or it has too little and it's just it, everything goes haywire and I and we think that that's why these symptoms have persisted consistently no matter what medication I've tried even though I've tried so many they don't get better so I've talked to so many doctors western doctors eastern medicine doctors nutritionists dietitians like all of them and there just doesn't seem to be a clear-cut straightforward way of rebalancing the bacteria in your gut after going through something like that but at least I think I have found a way of rebalancing it based on my mental health and reprocessing some trauma and unstucking my system that is frozen in flight. Marin says scientists call the stomach the second brain because our gut microbiome, gut immune system, and gut nervous system is in constant communication with our actual brain in our head. Katie says this has been one of the frustrating things for her, that doctors treat the gut like a liver instead of a brain. Our guts, the man behind the curtain. Now, the science there about how the neurotransmitters produced in your gut are processed by your brain that's a little shakier and we don't have any definite answers about that but there are definite connections to gut microbe diversity and incidents of certain psychiatric conditions like anxiety um, like post-traumatic stress when we see someone under extreme chronic stress there are definite market changes in the gut microbiome and what organisms are able to survive there. Marin says for the gut, it all comes back to food, even when mental health concerns are on the line. The body is holistic, she reminded me. Pain, stress, bacteria influx, it can manifest in places we don't expect. I think something that's really difficult about the mental health aspect is that, of course, when we're not feeling well mentally, it can, you know, one of the first things to go is making healthy food. Diet is definitely the biggest way to see change in your gut microbiome's uh, composition. The two things that matter the most there are diversity of food intake and um, so the different kinds of food you're eating, specifically for vegetables. Um, it's really important to try and eat as many different kinds of vegetables a day as possible because that exposes your gut to the most diversity of bacteria that like to live in your gut. Something that's important to talk about when we talk about food is prebiotic versus probiotic. Something probiotic is when you're ingesting live cultures. So if you flip the yogurt to the back of the container and you see on the ingredients label, it'll say live cultures. And that means that it has bacteria growing in it because that's how yogurt is made. It's made with bacteria. And that's a probiotic food because you're ingesting the bacteria. A prebiotic food uh, usually includes the things that the bacteria eat. So yogurt would be considered a pre and probiotic food because the bacteria like to eat the milk in the yogurt and they're in the yogurt. So you're not only eating the bacteria, but you're also eating what they eat. 
And that's really good because that means that you're ingesting the bacteria that you want in your gut, but you're also giving them something to survive on when they get there. They won't just go straight through. It's all a loop, right? Our whole health is holistic and is connected and is circular. So if you have more stress, it's going to be harder for your gut microbiome to have a thriving community, which is maybe going to make your digestive health a little worse, which is maybe going to make your stress increase, which is a circular loop. So trying to interrupt that loop wherever you can. Maybe it's with a diversity of foods. Maybe it's with implementing mental health services. Maybe it's with medication. Maybe it's with lifestyle changes that are going to help with your mental health. Trying to interrupt that loop wherever you can is going to help you get back into a healthier, more balanced cycle. It's not about restricting, Marin says. Sure, elimination diets can help us figure out what foods we might be allergic to, But these diets take a lot of time and effort and aren't easy for just anyone to pull off. Instead, Marin says, If you want to diversify your microbiome and you want to experiment with seeing how your microbiome might change how your gut will feel, I encourage you to add things in. Uh, And I, as a true scientist, you know, the only difference between um, messing around and science is that science includes writing it down. So I would have a journal and just as time passes, keep track of, okay, on this date, I started eating raw broccoli as part of my snack in the afternoon. Add that in and try to change as little else as possible about you know, your diet and what you're doing and just leave it completely as it was before. And three weeks later, check in and see if it's made any difference. Maybe you experienced a lot of bloating and it was really uncomfortable, so maybe broccoli's not for you. But maybe the added fiber and the bacterial colonies that really like to live in and eat broccoli fiber, uh, maybe that's, you know, been a great addition to your microbiome. And then add something else. Um, you know, it's really important to be aware of any changes in medications as well. Medications of all kinds, psychiatric and, and otherwise, can have a really big impact on the way your gut functions chemically and the way your microbial communities are able to survive. So keeping track of how your gut responds to changes in medication, changes in lifestyle, um, including alcohol use. You know, something that I think a lot of us don't think about as much is that lifestyle factors like like drug and alcohol usage really impact your gut microbiome. They are hugely impacted by everything we ingest, um, including alcohol and caffeine and things like that. In some ways, the advice feels like we're headed back to square one. There are no set answers. We just have to experiment. But on the flip side, it's kind of empowering to take a hold of our health, to write things down, to test different food and drink, to diversify by trying new things. Marin calls it a health journey, an adventure to embark on. I asked her what might be the end goal, what a healthy microbiome looks like. While it's, say it with me, different for everyone, she said this. But as far as we know, uh, diversity is really important. And so you can picture it a little bit like a forest. Instead of having all pine trees, right, which could get a disease specific to pine trees, they all get sick and die and you have no more trees in your forest, right? What you want instead is some maples, some oaks, some rowan trees, some, you know, as many different kinds as you can, because that's going to enable diversity of other kinds of birds, of mice, of other rodents. And the same holds true for your gut microbiome. Every species has its own niche, um, is producing its own 
chemicals that it produces is consuming its own food that something else doesn't eat. And so the balance of the ecosystem is incredibly important. If one thing gets thrown off, then it could throw off some other things. And your unique balance is something for you to be able to experiment and play with. Marin is hopeful that this science will evolve and grow and that soon we'll know enough to treat each individual to help their unique microbiome thrive. For now, she cautions against any product that advertises anything about the microbiome or bacterial science or even probiotic pills off the shelf. It's just not there yet. These are still just buzzwords, promising buzzwords, but soon, she hopes, treatments involving a person's individual microbiome will become a reality. Until then, we have tools to continue forward, a larger understanding of our body, how it works, what it needs. We can experiment, eat more fruits and vegetables, especially those with fibrous skin like potatoes and carrots to help nurture our pre and probiotic bacteria. We can write things down to ultimately understand the ecology of our bodies. We're organic matter. We're part of the earth. We have to keep our ecosystems intact for a more holistic environment. For Katie, a few things have worked. Medication, therapy, and she went vegan which asked her to incorporate more fruits and vegetables into her diet and has ultimately helped keep symptoms at bay. She's still on her gut journey, just hopefully a little more comfortable during the ride. I'm hopeful, although some days I am still hopeless and I still think about the fact that I thought I was going to go into the doctor one week and come out fine the next and it's been years and I haven't. But on most days, I think I'm, I'm still pretty hopeful that I will find a new reality, a new comfort. Thanks for listening. We owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. To Tish Gailmard of Reflection Writing Arboretum and Nature Center for introducing us to America's Wolf. To Marin Huntsberger for the information on gut microbiomes. You can check out her podcast called Surprisingly Brilliant anywhere you get your podcasts. And to Katie for sharing the story of her gut journey. And a thank you to the source material we used for research and background for this episode. News reports from CNN and The Washington Post. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Abby Newhouse, and Melissa Wade. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, weareherepodcast.com, and at our Instagram, at wearehere.podcast, as well as on Twitter, at we underscore re here. Until next time, we're here.